Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Aaron Mishansky, Director of Admission at Harvard Westlake. In this episode, Aaron speaks about a unique year in the world of admission, the challenges in not being able to welcome families to campus physically, but also the benefits of creating broader points of access through virtual engagement. In describing Harvard Westlake's approach in evaluating applicants, Aaron is quick to point out that there isn't just one type of applicant that stands out in a Harvard Westlake pool, that we seek, quote, cultural ads, not cultural fits, end quote, which this year means welcoming students from 175 zip codes and 250 sending schools across Southern California. Aaron points out how this is made possible by the indispensability of financial aid, which not only enables greater access and diversity, but maximizes the school's excellence. Aaron also speaks about growing up in the Bronx in a family of educators, attending Fieldston, Williams College, and receiving his master's at Penn, and progressing as a professional through admission roles at the Thatcher School in Ojai and University High School in San Francisco before coming to Harvard-Westlake in 2018. Aaron Mashansky on identifying attitude and aptitude and building a class that is kind, ambitious, and engaged. This is The Supporting Cast. Welcome to the supporting cast. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. You are uh, someone I think not a lot of people know yet in the community. Those who've applied to the school in the last couple of years have gotten to know you. I've gotten to know your team. But those you know, kind of outside of that window know that Elizabeth Gregory Reardon was here for so many years and ran the admission office so beautifully and that, that you're the, the new guy and you've brought your own style and uh, philosophy to the job and, and have done a tremendous job so far. So excited to hear more about your story and share your story with, with more people listening at home as well. I'm looking forward to it. I've been a fan of, of the pod for a little while, so I'm excited <laughs> to, to have my moment to, to hop on with you. It's, it's been so great to learn so much about colleagues and, and friends and the extended Harvard Westlake community. So excited to, to be part of this tonight. Great. Yeah, we're excited too. So first I want to know, uh, the last year has been unique, unique for all of us and especially for us who work in schools for the Advancement Office and obviously the admission office. So the first thing I want to know is kind of how have you been personally over the last year? How are you doing and your family doing? Kind of first, just on the personal level before we even get to admission at Harvard-Westlake. Yeah, I'm doing okay. A few weeks ago, we, we closed up the season, which you know marked a, a almost a full year of figuring things out, uh, both professionally and then personally as well. You know, I haven't gotten a chance to be back in New York City to see my folks in a little bit over a year, but yeah, uh, but but they're healthy and and they're doing fine, and and that's the most important thing. But it's been a challenge, you know. So much of our work in schools and in our personal lives, you know, has to do with connecting with other people in, in person. And so, you know, we've all been without that kind of connection for so long. So there have been moments where it was, you know, the, the people I saw most often were my team members on Zoom calls and not seeing many people in person. Yeah, other than, you know braving it to go to the supermarket for a while. So it's strange to kind of have take this moment now to reflect on, on so much. 
while still being in it, but things taking a turn for the better at the moment right now. But, uh, but overall, I'm doing okay. My, my folks are doing okay back on the East Coast in New York. Looking forward to getting back to see them in a, in a couple of weeks for the first time in about 16 months. Are you planning to see them now coming up? That's the plan. So you know, second vaccine uh, and everybody in the family has, has been vaccinated. Actually, I was the last one. And so, <laughs> so they're eager and excited. And I think right around Mother's Day. So I think it'll be kind of the perfect opportunity to come home and safely see my immediate family, see my grandmother. So, so looking forward to that. I should mention we're recording this the day after you got your second Moderna vaccine. And so mm -hmm. you weren't sure. You're like, I don't know how I'm going to be. And you're actually doing quite well. So, so good on you for those who've gotten that second Moderna vaccine shot. I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> he looks okay, everybody. He's doing okay. So now let's get to the admission office. I mean, you have said that to go through an entire season, over a thousand applications at Harvard-Westlake this year to accept hundreds of kids and to have never shook a hand of any applicant mm -hmm. yeah. or any applicant parent is a unique thing for mm -hmm. a director of admission. So can you talk a little bit about how the admission office had to adapt over the last year, all the things that would normally be sort of a, a high touch kind of program, seeing people in person, packed rooms, packed family visiting days, families in your office and, and interviewing them in a couch in your office, what that looked like in the last 13 months. I think for starters, I go back to when school closed last March, we had just sent out admissions decisions. So yeah. you know, we thought like everybody else, it was going to be a couple of weeks that people would have to make their decisions based on not being able to revisit and, and, and nobody had any idea that we would have to build out an entire admission process and uh, experience for prospective families. Nobody had spent time on Zoom or, or really had a sense for the capabilities or how well we could use it and, yeah. and how comfortable families would be with it. So, you know, we had a lot of questions because we just didn't know how we were going to do any of it. What actually, I, I think, made things a little clearer for us um, every summer, the office does a, a different reading. And our, our reading this summer was a book called Made to Stick. And mm -hmm. a couple of the key takeaways from the book were to really just keep things simple and to get right to the core of your message so that what really resonates with people is, is the, the two or three really simple things every time you interact with them that, that you want them to take away and, and remember. Uh, and what are those? Yeah. I mean, I think for us, knowing that we would possibly be in a situation where no one would get to, to see campus or meet kids in person or have all of their senses kind of be activated by being in our space. Right. Those were kind of the key things. We, we wanted people to understand our, our culture with authenticity. We mm -hmm. wanted people to be able to make connections with those individuals on our campus that represent different aspects of, of community life. And we wanted to provide real depth and range of what we do at the school and a place like Harvard Westlake has so much to offer. It was difficult to imagine how we would get everybody to understand all the different facets of the experience at Harvard Westlake. But if we kind of kept the core message and values at the heart of everything we did, that would kind of guide what events would look like. That would guide what our conversations would look like. That would guide ultimately how we would roll out information and experiences for people over the course of the process. And so we did a ton of brainstorming to try and keep things as simple as we could for families. And then, you know, trying to, to make the process as human as we could, knowing we were not the only thing on everybody's plates that they were trying to figure out 
and manage just as they went through their own lives at home. So we felt really good about ultimately the, the kinds of offerings, the number of things that we were able to provide for families. You know, I look back on all the offerings that we had from the virtual family visit days to the 1200 interviews that we did to the wow. information nights we did for arts and sports. In many ways, the experience became one that was more robust than we could have offered in person. Hmm. Because all it took to, to log in was to just turn on your computer versus having to fight traffic on a Tuesday night to come learn about financial aid. Yeah. And we were able to record everything. And so we created a virtual events library that if you missed the event live or you weren't able to, you know, to make it happen for, for your family on a particular day. You can watch it on your own time. Watch whenever you want. That also, you know, brought in the opportunities for families to visit classes in a way that just by virtue of the volume we have, weren't able to do that in person. You know, we host about 1,200 people on campus who all wish they could sit in a great teacher science class or a history class or sit in an art studio for 45 minutes. And that's something we just are physically unable to do because of our volume. But doing this you know, allowed for us to have a virtual shadow day. So we had almost, you know, over 20 hours of different classes that were available that wow. you could pick and choose and go watch whatever you want. And you know, while there wasn't the, you know, I get to raise my hand in that class over the course of the day, like I got to see as a seventh grader, what it looked like to be in a, an 11th grade math class. I got to look at what it was like to be in a ninth grade performing arts, acting improv class. Uh, and again, these are access opportunities that would not have been available if we were doing this all in person. So there's been some good learning for us, but to think back on the kind of range, depth, and access that people got over the course of this year, uh, it was unprecedented. And you could be anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, the virtual tour, you know, the only way families could used to be able to get on campus to, to walk through that beautiful theater that we have on the middle school was if they were in the applicant pool and they happened to come to a family visit day or to a, a parent guardian coffee. And you could look at it right now, regardless of where you are in the world. That tour that we have right now has over 12,000 views right now. Wow. It speaks to the, the interest that people have, but also just the, the reach that we have, not only throughout Los Angeles, but around the country, around the world. Well, that begs the question, I guess, is how much of this will remain, even if we're back on campus and folks can come to campus for a family visiting day. Mm -hmm. I assume some of these aspects of the program will remain. That said, the middle school campus, you talk about stickiness, mm -hmm. that is a spectacular mm -hmm. venue for us to showcase Harvard Westlake. It is a beautiful campus. Many think it's the nicest middle school campus maybe in the country. It's the nicest <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. So you also don't want to um, discourage folks from coming to campus because you worked in admission for a long time. Folks coming to a campus, whether it's a college or an independent school, and feeling the place in person is so important to, to them making uh, a good choice as well. I mean, I don't, I don't think that will, will go away. I do think we've discovered some value that we can add, I think, for people just getting to know our school. And I, and yeah. I also think it's, it's also been able to do some really great almost inbound marketing with, with our colleagues who might not have had the opportunity to be aware of all the other opportunities that are happening around campus because they're busy or just physically couldn't get to, to yeah. go to these different things. That arts information night that we had was the first of its kind. And while we always were able to invite prospective families to come to an art opening or to a, a show, we were able to showcase all of our arts programs in 90 minutes. And you could choose which program you wanted to go spend 25 minutes in on a Tuesday night. And if you missed it, 
you could watch the recording. Wow. And so people come back in a normal year to Harvard Westlake, probably on average four times, whether it's homecoming, whether that's an info session, whether that's a family visit day, maybe you do one event, maybe you come for a, a game to check that out. We're hoping that what adjustments we make moving forward will keep that same level of depth and authenticity and make it easy for you to have so many of your questions answered by the opportunities that now we know we can make available by things being recorded, by things being virtual. We don't want to run away with it. It's almost, yeah. it's almost a little tempting to just add endless opportunities. But you know, now we've opened the door for the range of things that we can do to make our school more accessible, regardless of where you are. When you read an application or when you sit down with a student, what are the type of qualities an applicant has when you are really blown away? When you say this person is perfect for Harvard Westlake, what are the qualities that are conveyed either through someone's writing or through someone personally that kind of jump out to you that when you're an admission committee and this student's profile comes up and you go, wow, this, this person is a star. This is a person who could really make a difference here on our campus. I think there are a number of things that, and that's a pretty common question that, that, that we typically get. And yeah. uh, I, I love the fact that, you know, I could sit here and spend the next hour talking about the different kinds of kids that could be great additions yeah. to Harvard Westlake. One of the things that, that we talk about is the importance of cultural ads, not cultural fits. Hmm. When we talk about the kinds of kids that do well at Harvard Westlake, yeah. we go back to a survey that we did when I first got to the school asking faculty and staff members about the characteristics that they would use to describe the students they really enjoy working with, the, the kinds of kids they get to interact with on a regular basis. And the three yeah. adjectives that are most common that they used are kind, mm. ambitious, and engaged. Mm. And so for us, that's continued to be really great clarity for how we think about the kinds of kids and the kinds of attitudes we hope them to bring to the process. I think about the combination of, of attitude and, and aptitude kind of working together in concert in that we have lots of really smart kids that apply to Harvard-Westlake and want to be at the school. But I think to be a successful student at Harvard-Westlake and the kinds of kids we really want to work with, they have the, the right kind of mindset and the right kind of attitude that I, I think makes them successful, which includes also being kind. I think it also includes being willing to listen. You're going to mm -hmm. sit in rooms where you're around really, really talented and engaged and capable students and to be okay, not always being the smartest person in the room. So that kind of attitude, some humility, but also that willingness to kind of put yourself in those situations and put yourself out there. Those are the kinds of kids that do well. I think the ones that you know, we're not kind of chasing down to get homework done, or you have to kind of nudge to do the things that yeah. are traditionally kind of expected of a student as a checking the boxes. We kind of expect that, you know, we want the kids that are saying, yeah, like, I'm ready to dig a little deeper. Like, I want to have the real conversations yeah. and exchange with my peers and, and recognize that there's room for, for me to grow, even though I know I, I deserve to be here and I'm a talented person who's worked hard as well, too. And so when I get into a conversation with a kid and, and I not only see that, you know, they're really excited about something that they do in the classroom or outside of it, but also see all the, the possibilities and, and opportunities they can really take advantage of. We, we talk about it being an adventurous spirit. 
when, when you have that uh, along with the capability and the capacity, those are the kinds of kids that, that I know our teachers want to work with. And those are the kinds of kids that, that really stand out as we're assessing them. It can be challenging sometimes knowing that you know we're talking to sixth graders in addition to talking to eighth graders. So I think you have to think about those two demographics a little bit differently because they're just the kids are in different stages of their development. But you know there, there's no shortage of kids who bring not only that that aptitude and capacity to the applicant pool, but it's the ones who kind of have that attitude and that willingness to kind of get out and try and, and kind of go after something. Those are the ones yeah. that I think get us really excited, knowing again they will be cultural ads to who we are, not just kids that we think would be cultural fits. Yeah. Well, that gets to the ambition and the engagement that the, the faculty love. So I want to kind of drill down on this point you're making about a cultural ad versus a cultural fit. And it gets to the sort of the notion of diversity and inclusion as it relates to admission. And I know there's a practical piece of diversity when it comes to building a class, right? There's a practical purpose but there's also a philosophical one to building a class that is culturally diverse or diverse in many types of ways. And I don't know if you can speak to both of those as you're assessing applicants and building a class. Why is it so important both practically and philosophically to bring different types of kids with different types of experiences and backgrounds to this school? Sure. I actually think that's one of the most exciting things about the work that, that our team gets to do at Harvard Westlake, in part because of our size. Yeah. Having been at two previous places that you know, were significantly smaller than Harvard Westlake, you know, we always felt a little hampered because there was so much in regards to just talented and interesting and just a range of perspectives that were out there for us that when I was at Dachau, you only had 60 spots. Like that really limited, you know, just yeah. all those great things that you could add to the mix to, to make the school a really great place versus a, a place like Harvard Westlake when we're enrolling 215 seventh graders and you know 85 to 90 ninth graders you know, 8 to 10 new 10th graders there's just uh, in one of the most diverse probably doesn't begin to describe it but one of the, the most robust city metropolitan environments in the world people want to come to the school we know that that's incredible raw material mm -hmm. I, I think for us to work with when i think about the diagram of what the, the harvard westlake student body you know, what we aim for it to look like. There are three kind of distinct regions that we hope our population looks like, and, and they all share something in the middle. It's related yeah. to, to character. You know, we want nice kids. We want kids that are going to be good to their peers and good to the adults, you know, good community members and citizenship. You know, we want quality, kids that are, that are capable and that are ambitious and really, you know, want to make the most of their experience. And then we also want composition, mm -hmm. knowing that that is, is truly the, again, the, the raw materials that make for a really exciting experience when you think about a ninth grade class that's got 14 kids in it. Within that group, you've got five different languages that are spoken at home, eight different zip codes that are represented. And, you know, they're, they're in there talking about anything. Right. Uh, you know, there's, there, there's so much that we know we can gain just from being in the presence of those other kids and that willingness to share and that, that willingness to listen. Diversity makes us excellent. Period. And so, yeah. you know, we're not shy about the intentional goals we have to be as close to as, as representative of the diversity of Los Angeles County as we can be. But, you know, we know that whether it's the research that shares it or probably in our own lived experience that being around people from many different walks of life is only going to enrich our perspective on the world around us. And then you throw in that they're, they're all capable kids who really love school. There's a lot 
that can can really be ignited in a place like Harvard Westlake. And so, uh, with every every spot that we offer and every class that that we build, you know, we're hopeful that it's a group of kids that are going to make each other better, that are going to expand the horizons of who we are and what we do, uh, and who we aspire to be as a school. And then individually, I think just make for a more enriching experience for each one of our kids. So it's kind of a given for how we do the work, but we we focus on. Again, making sure that you know, we're doing all that we can to, to make our schools representative of the diversity in Los Angeles County. So with the number of kids we're able to bring in every year, like I feel like I've got one of the most interesting jobs at the school and in the country. You know, I think the only places that can kind of compare are large boarding schools that yeah. draw from, from places all over the world. But what we're able to build in terms of the composition of Harvard Westlake, I think is unlike any other school in the country. Yeah, for a day school, I have friends who aren't in the independent school world and ask about well, what makes Harvard Westlake different. And one of the first things that comes to mind is that due to our size and our location, as you say, to be able to be a day school that pulls from more than 100 zip codes and more than 100 sending schools is so unique. Uh, 250 sending schools. Is that right? Yeah. 250? Yeah. 248. I mean, we're, we're doing the tally for what the next group is going to look like for the full school, but... But that, but that exactly too, I think what you were saying, Eli, so yeah. those facts about who we are at a glance, when I first got to Harvard Westlake, you know, those were things that people would speak about anecdotally, but we didn't have, you know, something that, that made it clear and digestible, just all that we had here for people to, to get to know. Yeah. So on the website, you know, we have our at a glance page, but what that looks like in, in hard copy is this, is this single page, double-sided, who we are you know, where we come from and what we do, that when we made that and, you know, we put it in every faculty member's mailbox just to say like, hey, like you might not know this, but we have 65 different languages other than English that are spoken at home. And people were just like, I knew this place had these different things that were part of its DNA, but I had no idea, you know, what it looked like. We've got 21 bus lines, you know, 175 zip codes that kids are waking up in the morning and making their way the Harvard Westlake, we just had a lot of stuff that we were able to share with people that just like it was here. We, we just weren't necessarily putting it front and center to, to show the range of experiences that we had already with us. Right. So I think putting those things front and center, I think, has has continued to show how large our footprint is. And I think it's been even more encouraging to people who might not know that much about the school or might not see it as a place that that they feel like could be for them as saying, right. oh, right. you know what? I didn't realize that, you know, this place that that's a, a nice, fancy place could be home to so many different kinds of people, including maybe me. But one of the reasons we are able to accommodate students from the far ranges of Los Angeles is because of the availability of financial aid dollars. And so I, I wonder if you could explain a bit about first what financial aid unlocks for you, what it makes possible for you and the committee as you're sitting there and looking at a talented applicant and knowing that they might not have the financial means to pay full tuition and knowing that we're able to accommodate that student. But also, if if you could, after that point, talk about what some of the limitations of financial aid are and how that sometimes can be one of the toughest parts uh, of the job as well. So maybe start with the positive and and then go with what we still hope to achieve somewhere down the line. Sure. In short, I think what our financial aid, our robust financial aid budget is able to provide is two things. I think it's access to the top 
students in Los Angeles, regardless of, of where they come from. Yeah. And I think in turn, it's, it's, it's a little bit more freedom for, for someone like me to say, these are great kids that we hope to enroll at the school. They are deserving of their space. Let's make sure we're able to get them everything they need. So the decision that their family is making is not about whether or not we can afford it. It's right. about this is the right kind of place where I know my child can thrive and do the very best that they can do. And, and really, again, add a great deal to our school. In our board report last year, Greg Gonzalez, our director of financial aid, and Arian McCory, our associate director of financial aid, put up a slide that read Harvard Westlake, but with all the vowels missing. And it was a visual kind of representing the need for financial aid, kind of providing those vowels, kind of many aspects of the core of, of who we are and what we do, because mm. It enables us to just be who we are. And many of these students that are applying for financial aid at, at Harvard Westlake are also applying you know, to many other schools and are among the most coveted students throughout Los Angeles. And we feel so excited that they, they want to make their way to Harvard Westlake. And we're excited to have them join us. And you know, we can confidently say that we will meet 100% of your family's demonstrated need not only as it relates to tuition, but as it relates to, to books, to, to travel, to sports equipment, technology, the way that the school supports students and families who receive financial aid is as comprehensive as I have seen it. The closest I've seen to it is at a boarding school where students are you know, away from their families when you know, the, the school becomes in loco parentis, uh, right. taking care of all the needs that a student might have on a, on a day-to-day basis and how we've constructed our financial aid. And I, I know that's in large part due to our, our board of trustees, to, to our, our business office, our CFO, to, to Greg and to Marion. I'll Give add our generous aid. donors as well. And our generous donors, absolutely <laughs> well. <laughs> we, couldn't, we couldn't do without them. You know, it, it gives us all the tools to provide just talented students, just the opportunity to make the most of this place. And it's not charity. I think there's a lot of times that financial aid is, is thought of as some sort of charitable act, and that, that could not be further from the truth. These kids are the real talent. And yeah. so all of our kids are super talented, but we are not dipping at all when we are enrolling great students and families that need financial aid. And you know we're thrilled that our, our yield is, in the last two years has been higher than, it, than it's ever been hmm. in regards to students who are receiving offers you know, with financial aid that are choosing to enroll at Harvard Westlake when we know they have lots of different options. And so what about the limitation? We are not need blind. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we hope to be there someday as some of the only really a, a, a small amount of, of universities are able to be at this point because of their resources. But can you talk about the difficulty of when you have very, very talented students. You have a limited amount of financial aid dollars to use per year, and you have to make some tough decisions. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's an important distinction to make just in regards to, to how we, we do admissions at, at Harvard Westlake. And we talk yeah. about this with, with families as well, too, is that you know there isn't a, at least initially for the, the committee, there isn't a separate pool for students that are applying that are seeking financial aid to, to enroll in the school versus students that are applying to the school that are not yeah. you know, seeking financial aid. The committee talks about everybody in the same conversation. It's and all so one process that way. It's all yeah. one process at that stage. Yeah. And so, which is important because, you know, it means that we're just looking for, for great kids. And right. the only people who are aware of that aspect of, uh, you know, students' application is, is literally myself and, you know, our director of financial aid. Like, that's it. 
everything yeah. else we want to make. This is about the kids. This is about you know how much we we know they could could add to our school. But as it works at, at any very selective school when it comes to admissions, our number of spaces are finite. Right. And so, you know, at a certain point, we've got to make really difficult decisions, keeping so many different things in mind. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, financial aid is, is one of those things that, you know, is difficult and that, you know, we are able to provide a lot with our robust financial aid budget, but it's not unlimited. And we ultimately have to, to get to a certain number of students and families that we're, we're going to be able to support, but support fully. Right. So inevitably, we always get to that place where we have some gut-wrenching conversations about fantastic kids that we're just going to not be able to, to provide an opportunity for at the school. And so that's, I would say, when, when my career got started, you know, now 13 years ago, that was the hardest thing. Yeah. It hasn't gotten easier. But I, I think I always walk away from those conversations feeling like, not only have, have we had the opportunity to meet these students and families along the way that hopefully all the, the ones that we feel most excited about uh, are going to be able to make their way to Harvard-Westlake, but that these are really capable kids that will do great anywhere, Yeah, both as someone who wants all of those kids with us, as well as someone <laughs> who can be competitive about wanting to have all those great kids and families with us. Yeah, And just you know knowing how much people put into the process, it's never easy. Well, now I want to get to you, Aaron. You're a New Yorker. I am. That's come on now. <laughs> he has a big NYC uh, picture frame behind him. So you were born uh, and raised in New York. What part of New York? Uh, in the Bronx. And everywhere that my bio is, or everywhere that any or anytime anybody asks about, you know, who I am or where where I come from, that's that's always where it starts. So so born and raised in the Bronx. Yep. Both my my parents, you know, grew up in in the Bronx and in Brooklyn. My sister just got a puppy through quarantine. The dog's name is Bronx. <laughs> uh, so we are New Yorkers through and through. I love the place. I miss it. I think it's such a huge part of my identity and how I was able to see the world. I, I frankly, I, I feel really lucky that I'm still able to call New York home and, and where I'm from. But uh, yes, a, a New Yorker through and through. And while the accent sometimes goes in and out, you know, I have people tell me like, oh, you don't sound like you're from New York at all. <laughs> as soon as I get off the plane and I breathe the air, Suddenly, it's like it's coffee, it's water, it's, it's the frigid air. It's like it's all it all's right back <laughs> somehow. And for those who who are curious, it's Yankees, Jets, Knicks. Is that right? For me, it is. For me, yes. it is, which is not always the right the, the combination you typically see. But uh, but yeah, growing up in the Bronx, Yankee Stadium was was ten minutes away from the house. The Knicks, they were there first. I don't you know I know the Nets are there now, but the Knicks were always <laughs> there first, and so that's led to a, a tortured existence for me. And then the Jets, you know, I don't, I don't know what it was. I think I liked the color green more than I liked the color blue. And so never, <laughs> never was a Giants fan, although I love the fact that they you know, beat the Patriots a couple of times to, to, win, <laughs> to win a couple of Super Bowls. I'll, I'll, I'll take that any day. And you're from a family of educators, as I understand. Yeah. Mom and dad, both 30-plus uh, years as public school teachers in elementary school. They actually met teaching at the same school. Oh, is that right? Yeah. My mother was a special ed teacher and my father was a fourth grade teacher and a reading specialist. And interestingly enough, you know, the, my four godparents all taught at the same school or in the same district as well. So both my parents, all four of my godparents, my grandmother, and now my, my two siblings, all educators. Wow. So yeah. So when, when it comes to conversations at the dinner table, when it comes to just, there was no such thing as like spring break, there was always homework. 
if we were off from school, we were, you know, we were in their classrooms or in their offices doing school where they were teaching. So any illusions I thought I had had of, of doing something outside of the field of education, I think the universe was going to pull me back in at some point. So never imagined I'd be a, an admissions director, you know, as a kid or, or right. even a teacher. You know, I mean, we were a, a family that you know, dedicated to education, but also you know, service and providing opportunities for agency for other people. So I guess that's it's what we do. It's what we do as a family. Yeah. So obviously education was an influence growing up and we'll get to some teachers that you had later in your career, but can you talk about kind of the influence of your, your immediate family or maybe your parents kind of were there things that they instilled in you yeah. about the importance of education or things that you think about as you run the admission office or try to build the type of community that we build at Harbor Westlake that resonate with you about things that they believe? You know, it's funny, you know, when you're when you're a kid and you, you, know, you see what your parents do or, you know, again, particularly having two teachers, teachers as parents, like it was just yeah. annoying all the time. It's <laughs> like it was, it's always about getting your homework done and, you know, had to, had to bring home good grades and it felt like I couldn't get away from school. But I, I think it also more than anything, it showed, I think, what good teaching looks like. And at the core of that is real care for, you know, the students and families that you work with. I'd say both of my parents are among probably the most generous people that I've, I've ever met in terms of giving time and real care. I mean, being tough with people, knowing that, you know, there's a certain amount of room you can give people, you know, without at a certain point saying, you know, you got, you got to handle this. But it never came without clear expectations, a clear idea of what that support and care was going to look like along the way. But, you know, helping you reach those high standards that have been set. And so... I think those were things that I got a chance to, to see on a daily basis you know, from my parents. I, I sometimes like, you know, was like, well, why are you you're giving so much care to all these other kids? Like you got three of us at home. <laughs> but, you know, I think it, it taught all of us, you know, the importance of being able to be helpful to others and you know, being, you know, relying on yourself and knowing other people have a lot of different things going on in their lives too. But that if it was out there and, and you wanted it, you, you had to work for it. So while I'm a pretty humble person, I think my parents instilled in me that, you know, you really can do whatever you really want to. So it's just kind of up to you. Like if you choose to put the time and the work in, you might not be talented and everything, but like most things are pretty possible. Mm-hmm. So there was no shaking that and, and there was no half-assing anything <laughs> to, 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 to <laughs> say the least around our house. But yeah, I was surrounded by teachers all the time. It was yeah. almost like I just, a language and that I just kind of, you just pick up because that's just what happens around you all the time. And, you know, couldn't be more grateful for it. Uh, yeah. You know, I reflect on it. And again, you know, part of it's the school piece of things, but part of it also is aspects of, of care for others, generosity, perspective, some grit, having to work for stuff. Mm-hmm. Both my parents, you know, my father was, you know, came through Ellis Island on one of the last boats as an infant. You know, my mother, you know, grew up in the projects in bed and it was their education that kind of allowed them to create a really nice life for themselves. And so it was always clear to us that taking advantage of great educational opportunities were of the utmost importance to, to lead to, to doing something meaningful with your life. So uh, grateful every day of when I kind of take on what I'm doing, like there is mom and dad in the back of my head kind of with their sayings or kind of that voice always there. Like, yes, but, <laughs> but <laughs> grateful that that was the foundation that led me to kind of be here, but also I think would have been helpful regardless of whatever I chose to take on. They didn't want us to be teachers. They never said, you know, this is the path we want you to take. I do believe, though, that I think because 
of my brother, sister, and I really admiring the way they impacted others' lives. And that being something that was important to us as a family, I'm not surprised that this is yeah. a field that we've all chosen and we've all chosen kind of different ways to make an impact. But I feel proud that all of us have followed in their, in their footsteps. Then you went to Fieldston, uh, mm-hmm. which is an independent school uh, in the Bronx. Is that right? Yep. So can you tell me a bit about the experience and then whether there was any teachers at Fieldston that had a particular impact on you? Yeah. So it actually all happened because of my, my older sister, who was born on January 2nd. And in New York, January 1st was a cutoff date for whether or not you would be kind of the, the youngest kid in your class. And my parents didn't want my sister to be the youngest kid in her class in our local public school. And yeah. they were both public school educators. So, you know, obviously they you know, strong believers in public education. But my sister was admitted to, to Fieldston and, uh, and a couple of other you know, schools in the neighborhood. And so that's kind of where it started. I mean, hmm. really like, you know, could have been 48 hours, 20, you know, 24, 48 hours that, who knows, like you and I would ne- may, may have never been sitting here together having this yeah. conversation. So uh, pre-K through 12, uh, all three of us were at Fieldston. So my sister is two years ahead of me, uh, me, and then my little brother two years behind behind me. It was an ethical culture school. So I, I think you know, we were, it was a very progressive place. And still to this day, I, I think is recognized as, you know, a place that, really values character education and the importance of diversity and inclusion and perspective and continue to be kind of national leaders in, in regards to those specific areas. But I think what was most interesting about that was the fact that we had we took ethics classes. Mm-hmm. And so my entire school career, there were classes that we had that talked about navigating different kinds of situations that, that talked about learning about perspectives on life other than your own, that, that taught you about how to treat other people, even if they were really different from you. And so I'm always super grateful for that foundation that, you know, again, ethics class from first grade to when you were a senior in high school, that was wow. that was a requirement for everybody. So I, I like to think I came out a half decent person or I just did, I didn't have any excuse to, to not turn out to be a, an okay person. But having been there for 14 years, there were a lot of you know, faculty members, adults, you know, coaches that, that all you know, played a really important part in my development. I'd say the, the one that jumps out at the top of my list was my, my first grade teacher, Kelvina Butcher, who was the, the first black teacher that I had had. And I was thinking about it a little bit earlier today. I did not have another black lead teacher in elementary school. And there was kind of one teacher that she had. And I don't know if I had another black teacher through middle school and high school, which thinking about, you know, identity development, we talk about the importance of windows, mirrors, and doors for kids to really get the most out of their education. You know, there weren't a lot of mirrors when it came to kind of the adults that were around a pretty diverse school in the middle of New York City. But yeah. just in regards to who was teaching me on a regular basis, you know, Kelvina really stood out in part because she was an extension of my mother. Or it felt like <laughs> that to me. Right. You know, she was always warm, but I knew not to cross her. <laughs> I knew not to cross her. And I used to, I used to be a cute little kid so I could smile and get my way out of stuff. She wouldn't let me, she wouldn't <laughs> let me, but always was, I think, really intentional about giving me room to still be a little boy who was playful, but always, I think, gave me a little extra when it came to not discipline, but just kind of standards that I know she had set for me, knowing that, you know, there was a little extra that she was going to do to make sure that I was good and I was taken care of. She actually, to this day, still comes and spends Thanksgiving with our family. She taught my oh, sister. Right? She taught my little brother. She's one of our closest family friends. But I count her as 
the most impactful teacher I had over the 14 years I had at Wilson because, you know, there was no question I, I felt seen by her. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that really mattered. Well, and that gets to, you talk about the diversity of the student body. It gets to how important the diversity of the faculty is as well. I mean, for that reason, um, your mom is African-American, your dad is Jewish mm -hmm. and you being able to see a teacher who looks like you and who feels like sees you mm -hmm. was probably incredibly important. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that was first grade and, and not having another one that, that comes to mind over the course of my time you yeah. know, at Fieldston. And then, you know, getting to Williams as, as a young man at that point. Yeah. And really taking advantage of being able to choose kind of the different teachers and professors I, I wanted to work closely with. And I, and I made sure, you know, all the opportunities I had to take classes with teachers that identified similar to me. And, you know, I was, I was going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was crucial in, I think, my own identity development. I, I will say, you know, there were different worlds I was able to straddle. So between life at Fieldston and then kind of the, the church community that we were part of, the sports community that I was part of outside of school, in addition to being someone who's, who is black, but also has you know, mixed heritage and who they are, you know, there was a lot of, yeah. you know, there, there was a need to be a chameleon in a lot of different situations, but it also, I think, gave me cause to celebrate all the different aspects of who I was, yeah. who I am, and, and all the different ways that I could, you know, appreciate different people's backgrounds too. And at Williams, what did you study and did you have an inkling then that you were interested in education or was it really kind of after Williams that you found your way into education? Yeah, uh, I was a history major. Mm -hmm. So I, and I was a camp counselor for a couple of summers when I was in high school, still not really thinking I would become a teacher. It just felt like I was, it was fun to kind of run around with kids in the summertime. Yeah. And then uh, I got to Williams and actually my freshman year, I was assigned work study in the dining hall. And I did it for the first semester and didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so I asked if I could do something else. And they were like, oh, you can volunteer at the local elementary school that was down the street. And so I was in Miss Casson's second grade class. It turned out I, was, I worked with her for four years. And wow. I just, I loved getting a chance. And I, and I would spend a few days a week from like 8.30 in the morning to 11.30. I actually would change some of my classes around so I could be there, you know, in the morning to, to work with the kids with reading and math. And that's the level that still feels appropriate for me, second grade reading and math. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's works. But that was kind of when I was like, okay, like this, this feels a little bit more than just something that's fun, but something that maybe there was, there was an impact that maybe I could make. But interestingly, you know, my, my summers were spent interning in law firms. So I mm -hmm. spent a summer interning after my sophomore year at a law firm in New York, and then spent two summers interning at law firms, you know, Washington, DC. And I thought that was going to be the path. And even through my senior yeah. year of college, took the LSAT. Parents were, were very gracious and paid for that test prep and, uh, <laughs> and thought that was going to be the path. But I decided I wanted to do something different for a year to two years before I entered the workforce as a, as a lawyer. And so I thought maybe I'd teach at a boarding school and extend kind of that college life a little bit longer, get to work with students, coach a little bit, teach. Yeah. But it'd only be for a year to two years. And so, uh, you know, I, I worked with... Uh, very popular search firm to just kind of put my name out there and understand kind of what the landscape was like and thought this little boarding school in Southern California, like that seems interesting. I'm a little different. I've never been to California before. You know, a kid from New York City, a kid from the Bronx, like California was another universe. Yeah. So like, let's, let's give this a try for a year or two and just see how it goes. And so it was an admissions job at Thatcher in Southern California. Yeah. Not just a, a big city in California, no. but Ojai. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which I think having uh, lived in Williamstown for four years was great training for, yeah, for being that's true. In, in Ojai. 
But, you know, in some respects, it was a little different for me because, you know, once I got to Thatcher, you know, I was the young person in the office with no kids. So I was traveling all the time doing the missions work. Right. But yeah, I, I thought Thatcher was going to be two years tops and fell in love with the work. And so working with the kids and just the, the different kinds of kids I got a chance to meet and, and traveling around the country and around the world, it, it really stuck. So uh, I apologize to my parents for the money that was spent on test prep, on LSAT prep. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, they were happy. I was happy. And this whole California adventure, it stuck. It just, it stuck. I, I was not expecting that at all. But, you know, really good people there. Such an interesting place to work. And to be a New York City kid living in Ojai was, uh, was a little bit of a culture shock. And were there mentors there at Thatcher, either within the admission office or within the school that you looked to and said, you know, if I kind of continued my career, I could really see a path forward, maybe in independent schools. Yeah, no, I feel like I was really fortunate to be welcomed into a great team in the admissions office, as well as just, you know, a very high functioning school with really high quality people that were there. Yeah. And you got to be in close proximity to them all, not only because you live next door, but because, you know, you were involved in all the, the work and life of the school with each other. So for me, it was a, a front seat to not only really capable people, but, but real professionals. So yeah. uh, that was kind of where I grew up a little bit professionally, or at least in education. You know, I was hired by Chris Mazzola, who's been the head of Branson School now for the last five or six years. So she was the person who plucked my resume. And so, you know, she's like family to me. Yeah. My first boss, Bill McMahon, you know, I probably owe so much of kind of just how I approach the work and, and think critically about you know, messaging and working with families, but, you know, also like he had three kids that were a few years younger than I was, and I was 3,000 miles away from my family and from my parents. And so while I got to visit them very often, like that became my, you know, my professional North Star kind of group. Yeah. And that also really became my, my family too. So I learned a lot from Bill and he's someone that, you know, I connect with on a regular basis and we joke about you know, how I got started and how he kind of trained me to do admissions work and to practice uh, to understand our value proposition, to practice our, our elevator pitch as it related to Thatcher. But I, you know, I learned a lot about education and pedagogy and working with adolescents from him. And you know, also how to manage and work with people too. So uh, that was a, a great five years of professional growth that took good care of me. And I think we're really happy when it was time to move on to the next stage of my, my life and career. But I've gotten emotional when I've left, you know, the previous places that I've been, but I, I cried real hard that last day when huh. we were all in the office together and we all sat there and kind of cried together because, you know, we had built a lot and they had really seen me grow up. You know, I started there when I was 21. Yeah. And, you know, was adjusting to a lot and, you know, left this 26 year old, very different person in regards to being a professional. Just, you know, I was, I felt like I was a real adult at that point. A lot of it was, yeah. it was thanks to them. And you left to take a big job. You you yeah. left to become the director of admission at University High School, one of the best independent schools in San Francisco and Pacific Heights. And you also, and, and you can let me have the timeline here, you were also getting your master's back at Penn. So kind of what was the timeline there? And then what was your experience like at UHS? It's interesting, you know, that connects to how I found my way to Harvard-Westlake too. So it was in yeah. year three at Thatcher that you know, just thinking about, you know, ways to do professional development. And at that point, I was like, all right, maybe I want to do this a little more seriously. And Penn had a, a full-time master's program in private school leadership that was for people that were working full-time. Right. And so the requirement of the program was to go back to Philly one weekend a month 
to spend you know a Friday night, a Saturday, and a Sunday in classes. Every other Wednesday on it wasn't Zoom. I know it wasn't Zoom, but it was <laughs> some, some. I think it was. It might have been like Google or I don't know. Like we we yeah. had to do remote learning. That was my introduction to remote learning. Fascinating <laughs> how, how far we've come. And so I did that for for fourteen months. And so I flew back to Philly one weekend a month. Still worked full time. And that's actually how I first kind of got. I think on the radar with Harvard Westlake, uh, Jordan Church, who's the dean of, of students at the upper schools in the same right. program with me, and we would catch the first flight out of LA at I think about 6 a.m. Uh, on Friday. And after the first flight, once we got to be friends, we, we took every flight together and would you know be there Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday. Once class ended at three o'clock, we'd hustle to the airport, up on 4:30 <laughs> flight back to LA. I'd have to drive the 90 miles to back to Ojai from the airport, and then 8:30 in the morning, I was sitting in the living room, giving presentations to families. So yeah. that was a, a long 14 months, but so appreciative that I was able to make that happen. And then that also just opened up the world of like, all right, what, what's possible for me in the next, in the next few years. And so after five years at Thatcher, I think it was time. I kind of felt like, you know, I, I learned enough and as it related to admission and also was just kind of ready to be in a different kind of environment. Oh, I was great, but I think I was ready. My 26 year old self was ready to be back in a, in a city more more permanently. Yeah. And I should mention before you moved to UHS, yeah. the Jordan Church was the reason. I mean, I know he was talking to Ed Hu and Rick Commons and different people yeah. about it. So there's this guy, Aaron Mashansky. And at some point, you got to look this guy up. Yeah. We <laughs> we were tactful about it. There were a few lunches with, with Ed Hu and Sharon Cusio yeah. at Marmalade Cafe on, <laughs> on Ventura. I remember. Jordan kind of kept you kind of kept gassing me up a little bit. And I just was like, there's no way. But UHS is great. You know, it's, it's yeah. funny, you know, thinking about a, a place like Harvard Westlake, a place like UHS. You know, these were the places that were very different from you know, Little Thatcher with our 240 kids and everybody gets a horse. These were the places that we kind of were trained to compete against, even though they might not have seen us because we were you know, small flies, maybe picking off two or three kids from them every year. But for us, you know, those were really meaningful wins when kids would choose us. And so getting over to, to UHS and getting a chance then to you know join the evil empire was a lot, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, there was a lot I learned about just my own leadership and management style. You know, that was hard. Yeah. You felt like an adult, but you were still only 26 running yeah. an office there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that first year was one of the more challenging years I've ever had just because I was figuring out how to do that. Like the admission stuff was easy, but yeah. figuring out how to you know, be a member of the leadership team at the school, how to figure out how to you know, manage my own office to manage an extensive group of volunteers that are going to be supporting the process, getting used to a new city. There was a lot that, that I was trying to, to navigate and figure out. But the school's fantastic. I came in with a brand new head of school there. So we walked in together on the very first day. So we hmm. were able to have many moments where we just looked at each other and we're like, what is happening here? <laughs> how, do, <laughs> how do we figure this out? But UHS, you know, it was, was very much kind of like the Harvard Westlake of San Francisco. And so mm -hmm. it was a lot of learning for me, but there were so many things I was able to be involved in there that I think helped me along kind of my professional journey and, and obviously to, to add some more great people to what I like to think is you know, just a, a really broad and deep bench of mentors, uh, folks that, that I feel like, you know, have my back. And then after five years, it was, I was ready. You know, it's interesting. I wasn't looking for another job. Yeah. I was very happy at UHS. It was, UHS was a destination job. But the job at Harvard Westlake hadn't opened up in a while. A long time. <laughs> in a long time. I even said to our head of school, I said, you know what? Like, I don't really know if I want to go, but like, I have to go look. Yeah. I have to just kind of see what this whole thing is about. I've heard so much about the place. Like, I, I got to check it out. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm just glad I didn't screw it up. <laughs> well, and I should add, despite Jordan Church talking to Ed Hu and Sharon Cusio and Rick Commons about you, there was a national search we did for our director of admission, and we had applicants from all over the country and all over the world, and you were the last person standing, and you've been a wonderful addition, shall I say. And, I, and by the way, Aaron in my office is just down the hall, and so I try to give Aaron a hard time as much as possible. Uh, but, we're good at it. We're, we're good but at we've that. had a good time. We keep each other, we keep each other grounded. We make it fun. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Before we go, I, I, there are some standard questions as part of the supporting cast. Los Angeles, which is your new home for the last few years, despite being a, a New Yorker by birth, we are known for our film, our food, and our climate. The first question I have for you, what is Aaron Mashansky's favorite movie? favorite movie, I would probably say it's Coming to America. Mm. The first one. Second the first one. one. Yeah. I'm supporting the franchise, but the first one, clear. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, what is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Is there a restaurant that you have gone to or something you make at home that you have found in Los Angeles that you love? So I was actually introduced to it years ago when I was living in Ohio. I would come up on the weekends and play basketball in Santa Monica with buddies but for me, it's, it's sandwiches from, from Bay City's Deli. Uh, you know, growing up in New York, just like the bread, just the yep. bread matters. <laughs> and they have great bread. They do great work. So Bay City's you know, sandwiches from there, anytime I'm on the West Side, I, I make time to stop, pick up uh, two to put one in the fridge. But Bay, Bay City sandwiches, hands down. My wife and I love Bay City's. And they're on DoorDash, by the way. If, if you want to not wait in the long line and do the thing, you can sit in your home and pay the extra fee and wait for a DoorDash. <laughs> What's your favorite place in LA? You know, I, I live not too far away from the upper school in, in Studio City. And, right. you know, I, I think I'm still getting used to like living by the beach. But my favorite spot is uh, there's a hike here in Franklin Canyon that the peak of it gives you a whole view of the west side all the way to, to the water and down downtown. It's, it's is that the one we did? Is that the one we did? you and I did together. Yeah, that one. Awesome. Uh, that's my favorite spot. So I'm regularly there, you know, whether it's early in the morning or in the evenings, both the, and hiking was a newer thing for me too. So that's been like a <laughs> Southern California thing, but that's my favorite spot. Last question. As you know, I am uh, the parent of a almost two and a half year old daughter who you've met. She's doing much more than kind of rolling around now. Now she's, <laughs> now she's mobile. She did do a great half somersault, sideways somersault. <laughs> she was trying to show off really. It was really in advance of her Harvard Westlake application many years from now. I guess my question is for parents who have kids who are going through an admission process, we just went through a preschool admission process, which is, is very different from the one at Harbor Westlake, but what is the, the best advice you have for parents of kids who are nervous about this process, who are trying to find the best fit for their child, who are trying to approach this with a level head, really want the best for their kid, but, but ultimately also want the best fit? What's the best advice you have when a parent asks you, kind of, what do I do to prepare? What do I do to prepare my child? How should I enter this with the right frame of mind? Yeah. I think the first thing I tell people is, you know, take a deep breath. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things that like, and I, and I mean it when I say it to people, because we get, you know, we get that question a lot or, you know, what are we looking for? What are the things that we need to do to, to look good for a place like Harvard Westlake? And the first thing is like, take a beat. Yeah. And that, you know, recognizing that like, in a place like Los Angeles, there are so many outstanding options that are available to students, both that are independent, that uh, that are other kinds of schools as well, too. And I think Harvard Westlake's amazing, and I think it's the best one, but, but you know, I'm a, I'm a little biased. In it. Yeah. I think the next thing to think about is 
it's, it's a combination of kind of doing homework on a school and its community and its culture and kind of doing some homework on your own kid. Mm. I find a lot that parents do a lot of projecting for their children as they go into the process and sometimes go too far in thinking that their kids are, are kind of them. And, mm. you know, are hope are thinking they want the same things that they want or are interested in the same things that, that they're interested in and have the same kind of interests or, or aspirations that they might have. But it's an, it's an unbelievable process to, to better understand your, your child and the things that they're interested in and the things that really excite them. And so I think taking the time to do real homework and real getting to know different schools, I think really matters. It's very easy to get caught up in the very short stories that come from one or two perspectives on the sideline of a soccer game or at a cocktail party that right, do too right. much coloring of how families are making decisions about applying or those very strong feelings they have about a school because they heard about it from one person who went there. <laughs> Happens all the time. Yep. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, give schools a chance and give your child a chance to discover what they're really interested in. And it doesn't have to be pushy, but, you know, explore different schools and just ask kind of the simple questions about like, what, what did you enjoy? Like what really resonated with you? What are the things that you know, make you a little nervous about those places? You'd be surprised, you know, over the course of that, of the process of the fall, you know, how much more kids will share about what really speaks to them and to take that into account. Again, there are lots of really great options here in Los Angeles. And the last thing you want is a miserable teenager living in your house because <laughs> either something got forced on them that they didn't want, or there wasn't a full discussion as a family making those final decisions. And I'm one of those people who doesn't say like an 11 year old should be making an admissions decision for the next year, six years, taking a lot of time and resources completely on their own. I'm someone who, who thinks this is a family discussion, sure, uh, but it should be a an extended discussion related to things that really speak to them, that speak to you all as a family. And then the last thing I would say is just, you know, take into account like you know, the very real life things that, that go into being part of a school community. Like, you know, we've got kids from 175 different zip codes and 21 different bus lines, but quality of life is important. <laughs> quality yeah. of life is important. So I, I, I won't discourage people from traveling long distances for something they feel like is a really great fit for their student and for their family and they really want it. But um, you know, in the same way for us, you know, we, we have to take a very hard look at who we are as a school and, and who we aim to be and the kind of students we know will make us a better school. I think students and, and their families have to take a, a hard look at kind of, well, who's my kid? Yeah. What do we really feel is going to be the best kind of environment? Yes, for them to, to be challenged academically, but for them to grow as 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 young people, as adolescents making their way into young adulthood. That's what I tell folks and to, to not overthink it when you when your kids too. <laughs> yeah. I get I get too many phone calls of people asking where I should send my kid to preschool. I don't I don't have I don't have an answer <laughs> right. for that. Sorry, I think that was me, Aaron. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> You've been good. <laughs> uh, well Aaron, thank you so much for the time and for helping to build such a robust community with such talented and amazing kids. And thank you for joining the supporting cast. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.